Um, tonight we're back in Judges, Judges chapter 9. Long chapter, but we're going to get through it, hopefully. So, good to see you all. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, start our, our study tonight. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Lord, we, we thank you for this place in which we meet. We don't take it for granted. And thank you for those that have gone before us to allow us to have a property like this and to be able to have a um, hall in which to meet on Wednesday nights and worship center on Sunday. We thank you for that. And, and Lord, we do pray that you would just uh, do your work here tonight. And, and Father, as we look at this uh, kind of a dark chapter in Judges chapter 9 with uh, this renegade king, Abimelech, and how, once again, the nation of Israel uh, fell by the wayside and went after things they shouldn't have. And how that's a, even a picture of us and our country. And, and Lord, we pray that you would just uh, help us to set aside the business of our day and our week just for the next hour or so together as we look into your word. Pray that you would bless it to our hearts and to our minds. We thank you. And Lord, we do pray for those over in Israel as they're under siege. <laughs> And Father, we just pray for their divine protection. And Lord, we also ask for your grace for those who are uh, dealing with this uh, pandemic uh, uprising back again in India. And Lord, how it's just uh, costing many lives. And we just pray for your grace and pray for the church to be strong there. That it would be able to offer not just physical support, but spiritual help for those in need. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, just so you know, we just uh, just today sent off um, $5,000 to those in India at uh, the Herbert Poor uh, Christian Hospital, where uh, Sam's brother used to head that up, and now he's at a different hospital, but it's kind of a COVID treatment center, and they're just in great need. So we thought the best way to help them was to wire them some money. So we did. So we're praying that that will go to good use over there. Well, tonight we're in Judges chapter 9, and uh, we're dealing with this illegal renegade king, so-called uh, Abimelech. And he's really uh, put himself in this position. No one else did. And so he uh, was really out to seek power. He had a lot of ambition going on. And it was really... An ambition that we all share. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having ambition, right? There's nothing wrong with um, wanting to, to to rise up and and things like that, and and have a certain level of authority. That's within all of our hearts. But um, one thing I think that we have to be careful of is that can be used for good, right, and for evil. That desire for that kind of power. There's a legitimate seeking of power, and there's also an illegitimate seeking of power. There's a good ambition that resides in a lot of people's hearts, but there's also a bad ambition, a righteous ambition, an evil ambition. And uh, ambition really becomes evil when it's used for what? For its own selfish purposes. When you want something just because you want it, you might want to stop and, and question, is this ambition from God or is this ambition from my, from my flesh? And, and when power is sought to gain more and more 
power for the pure purpose of dominating people, right, we have a problem. We see that even in our own government, right? There's always a power grab. Um, and so the present, the passage tonight that we're going to look at, it, it has to do with the evil ambition, uh, with those that are seeking power purely out of uh, selfish motives. And the guilty culp- culprit here tonight is this individual named Abimelech. And he was one of the sons of Gideon. Uh, when his father died, he wanted to become king over the territory that his father had served as judge. That was in his heart. That's what his desire was. And when you come to this book of Judges, it's kind of perplexing a lot of times in our modern minds because we read things that are just, wow, they're just so edgy. There's just, I mean, this guy slaughters 70 other men to take the role as king. And they were his relatives, <laughs> his brothers. So that's not a, a really good thing. Um, and so he doesn't deliver his people from an outside oppressor or anything like that. Rather, this, this guy, Abimelech, what he sets out to do is he, he, he plunges a part of the nation into a civil conflict. And basically, it shakes the nation to the very core. And so this chapter is about a man, really, who's out for blood, beginning with his ascension to power all the way through the murder of 70 of his half-brothers and ending with his own violent death, finally. By the way, a woman kills him in the end. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, I just spoiled the whole thing, right? Uh, and it's, it's kind of ironic because this guy is searching for power and he's taken out by a woman. And just to show you how blind he was to his own ambition, the stone is dropped on his head by a woman and pretty much it incapacitates him. <laughs> and uh, rather than die that way, he tells his fellow soldier, just, just run me through so they can say that I didn't die by the hands of a woman. I mean, that's how about this, himself, this man was. And so we, we see that. And so there's a lot of grisly things here tonight. But in the book of Judges, we're almost halfway through the story of the Judges. Now, this is not a judge. Abimelech was not a judge. Um, some commentaries skip over this whole chapter, as a matter of fact. It's kind of weird. Uh, it's still the word of God, but he's not a judge. Uh, but we're halfway through the story of the judges. And instead of focusing on another judge, in chapter 9, what we see here is the writer deliberately focuses on this guy, Abimelech. And I think it's really the focus of the story for the simple reason he wants the readers to understand the rampant progress of evil in the life of the nation. He wants them to see how far they've actually gone. When we come to the end of this book, we're going to see the last four chapters of Judges. The last four chapters basically provide a summary of all these incidences that we've been studying over these many weeks. And the whole sorry process which the narrative has progressively unfolded is, is the same. Israel doesn't seem to get it. <laughs> you know, it keeps on, we keep on seeing this repeated. And Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> and you, we talked about when we started that cycle that goes on. 
and it goes on in our own lives to some degree, right? I mean, there's certain sins that, you know, we commit, and boy, we're sorrowful. We go to the Lord, we repent, and then weeks later, we find ourselves back in the same, same situation. So, you know, we're not innocent in all this, but at the same time, we wonder how a nation can be so forgetful about how much God has done for them as the nation of Israel, and yet we look at our own country and we see the same thing. So we just have to be reminded of that. And so structurally, we need to remember that this chapter is kind of a, an epilogue of what we learned before about Gideon. It's an epilogue to the Gideon sequence of events. And the irony here is the mention of Abimelech's father by his other name. Uh, let's look at the first six verses here as we look at Abimelech's destruction. It says, now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, that's, that's basically Gideon's uh, 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 other name. It means Baal fighter. All right? The pagan, the pagan god Baal. And so he calls him by that. And so this is, this is the son of uh, Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam uh, rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Now remember, this is his son outside of, of marriage. Okay, so he's kind of illegitimate. Verse 3, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and the hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. In other words, he's our relative. Yeah, I'm sure he, he means well for us. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal, Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless, look at this, and reckless fellows who followed him. In other words, he had to actually pay people to follow him as a leader, as a king. And they weren't even good people. It says they were work, worthless and reckless. It's kind of like, you know, if you want something done around your house, you know, you're either going to go pay a lot of money to have a handyman come out who knows what they're going to do, Right? Or you're going to go wander the streets and look for somebody who's looking for a quick job on a Saturday morning and you don't know what, they, what their background is. You don't know what they can do. They're, they're just out there trying to make a buck. But they may not have the skills to do the job. Well, these guys were just worthless and reckless fellows. <clears throat> but they were willing to follow him uh, because he gave them money. It says, verse 5, And he went to his father's house, at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, Jerubbael, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together in all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Now, you have to remember, Israel's at a place where they keep on following these pagan gods. They keep on following idols. It's just a repetitive thing. 
that they keep on doing. <clears throat> and even though God has instructed them over and over and over again about idols, he talks about it in Psalm 115, verses 2 to 8. He says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human <clears throat> hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Verse 8, it says in Psalm 115, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then in verse 9, the psalmist says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help in their shield. And it kind of says the same thing over in Isaiah chapter 44. But see, if God is not reigning, guess what? Someone is. It's not like there's an empty throne. Even in our own lives. If God is not on the throne of your life, guess what? The throne's not empty. You're, you're on the throne. All right? And that's, that's one thing we need to be reminded of constantly. Um, as the spiritual life of a nation declines, what happens in Israel? The clamor for a king increases. Because they're not acknowledging God as their king. So what are they doing? We want someone to rule over us. Look at all the other pagan nations. They have kings. Why can't we have a king? And God is saying, hello, I am your king. Oh, I get the picture. You don't want me. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll give you what you want. And God grants them their request in the person of Saul. We see that in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? So God tells Samuel they have not rejected you because they ended up not going that way either, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And so this Israel's on this path of wanting this king and everything, and Abimelech kind of steps in here and takes, you might say, advantage of this. And uh, he really wanted to be King, remember with Gideon, they wanted him to be king. Remember that? The people wanted to make him king. He said, no, 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 no I'm not into that. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do that. And so his son, stepson, apparently saw this and clearly had that desire in his heart to, to become a king a leader he his passion his ambition was so strong he was willing to kill his own family to get there i mean it's kind of crazy i mean it's not that i mean that's probably one of the biggest slaughters that has been in for someone to have ambition for the throne but there's been other ones throughout history but israel may turn her back on the lord and i think what what god has wants to show us is even though Israel is turning its, its back on the Lord, he, he, they're turning their back on their king. That does not mean that God reciprocates. doesn't mean God says, okay, I'm going to turn my back on you then. Like we would do as humans, right? Oh, you're not going to like me? Well, you know what? I don't like you either. And we both stomp off in different directions. No, God, God doesn't do that. You know, when you run away from God, you have to remember you're only one step 
from returning to him. It doesn't matter how far you run. If you're his child, you're only one step to coming back into that proper relationship with him. And it's, it's important that we, we realize that because sometimes um, people run and run and run and run and they think, well, they've run far enough. They've, they've run far enough away from God and he's not there anymore. And they turn around one day and God's saying, hey, I'm still here. <laughs> you ready? And, and God has a way of carrying out his purpose, his plan in our lives. You know, we believe that God is sovereign. Um, he's all-powerful. He knows everything about us. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And it will be carried out. And it's just easier to, to cooperate with the Lord than to not cooperate with the Lord. Because he's going to win in the end. You're not going to win that battle with God. Um, so if people choose deliberately to live without reference to God, then God may well leave them to their own devices. Where do we see this in the Bible? If you, if you read Romans chapter 1, we're not going to turn there now, but Romans chapter 1, right? That's what we see. That's, that's, a, that's a description of our modern day world. They were confronted with the truth, and what did they do? They suppressed the truth, right? Um, from the very beginning to the end. God's word, the truth says, in the beginning God. And what do they say? No, 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 no. In the beginning evolution, in the beginning, bing, bang. In the beginning, this. In the beginning, that. They don't want to acknowledge God for anything. And whenever you get to that point, you're on a, a quick path, a spiral downward. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, if I said 10 years ago to you, you know what? There's going to come a day in our country where they're tearing down statues of George Washington and, and whoever. You would say, no way, not in America. <laughs> it's like, I mean, who would have thought? Right? It's crazy. It is crazy. We live in an upside-down world. And, and basically, the Bible says in Romans 1, eventually God says, you know what? If you're going to worship other things other than me, if you're going to worship the creation that I provided for you rather than the creator, guess what? I'm going to give you over to your own wishes. You go ahead and worship that tree or you, that whatever. <laughs> um, if you're not going to acknowledge me, you're going to get exactly what you want. And we, we see that downward spiral happening throughout. Well, that's the same thing <clears throat> that happens here. And I think it's, it's important that we realize that <clears throat> here is this man who wants power so bad, he gets to the point where he kills his own family to get it. Um, there's no indication in the text that the 70 sons of Gideon had any aspirations at all to assume or to enlarge their father's role. It doesn't say they were all pining after, you know, the kingship or anything like that. But Abimelech's appetite for power is made abundantly clear and very plain to us. Uh, he attributes a, a similar thirst to his half-brothers in order to win over the men of Shechem. So he goes to his blood relatives and says, hey, you know what? Um, these guys, these 70 guys, they want to rule over you. All of them. You're going to have 70 rulers over you. Do you think that's a good idea? Or do you just want me, your relative? I'll take care of you. You know? And uh, he, he threw the line out there and they bit. And so Abimelech was 
a, a son of Shechem. And here's the opportunity for them to have a taste uh, of real, real power. Uh, and think of this. Shechem was really the center of idolatry. Okay, It was the center of idolatry. And the sooner they acquired power in the vacuum that was created by Gideon, who, remember what he did, he got rid of a lot of these pagan idols and all that stuff, by Gideon's death, the sooner the idolaters could confirm their pagan rights again and, and resist the sons of Gideon and uh, all that. And so here Abimelech was just purely interested in his own personal power, and he uses family loyalties and even jealousies to, to really boost his own interests. And so having persuaded his uncle, uncles of his candidacy, he's able to use a large sum of money uh, from the, the Baalite temple treasury, by the way, pagan origin, uh, to put together a task force of really mercenaries to remove all the sons of Gideon who stand in his way. Even though they weren't really doing anything about it, they, he just thought, nope, I, I, I have to have a clear path here. So I've got to kill all these people. And so in one of the most ruthless, cold-blooded way, he murders his 70 brothers at the family home, and he himself is proclaimed king in Shechem. Um, his jurisdiction is still limited, because that's, that's where it's at. In effect, he's a, what we would call modern day, he's like a local warlord. <laughs> you know, he's taken by violence this territory, and he's declared himself king. And, uh, you know, he, he's just ruling out of fear. And, uh, and that kind of power always, always will corrupt. And eventually, what happens? They demand total control. And this is, this is basically uh, what happens here. The whole story kind of unfolds in, 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 in 1 Kings 15, 2 Kings 10, and we don't have time to look at all those, but it, it's interesting how, how God um, you know, works in, in the lives of nations and things like that. And so we see Abimelech's kind of beginning here of his destruction which is basically from his only a picture of his selfish ambition and his lust for power. But then you come to his denouncement here in chapter or in verse 7 of chapter 9 of Judges. Um, the parable and this prophetic curse upon this self-proclaimed king. It's really, a, it's really a declaration of God's judgment. God never allows something like this to go undone. He'll always answer somehow. It may not be in our time. But somehow he always brings things to light. So in verse 7, look at what it says. When it was told to Jotham, when he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. He's trying to reason with them. That God may listen to you. And he gives them an illustration. And he speaks the parable of these trees. He says, The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? Verse 10, And the trees said to the fig tree, Come, 
and reign over us. Verse 11, but the fig tree said, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, <laughs> this is the useless bush, you come reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now this is meant to be an illustration. It's kind of a prophetic word from someone who really sees what's going on here. And see, out of this low outcrop of, of Mount Gerizim, kind of, it really provided a natural <coughs> platform around Shechem. Uh, today it's called Jotham's Pulpit. <laughs> and that's kind of what it is. It's a place where you can actually speak to people. The voice of Mount Garrison would have been a strong historical reminder of what Joshua took them through, who had spoken the word of God to them before the same location to the assembled tribes. And, and now one of the sons of Gideon, who's escaped this massacre, he assumes this prophetic role and he tells a fable designed to awaken them and kind of get a hold of the hearts of these, these people who are going to follow Abimelech. And Jotham himself claims that their hearing and their reaction to his story will determine God's reaction. Uh, that's what he, he says basically there in verse 7. He went and stood on top and he cried aloud. He said, listen to me, you leaders, that God may listen to you. It's kind of a thus saith the Lord moment. If the Shechemites are to understand the grace of God and to avert this tragedy that's coming, um, they have to listen to this prophecy. Um, and if they did, if they would have, they would have repented of their stupidity, really, so that God can hear them and forgive them, just like he hears and forgives us when we do stupid things. We go to him, and yeah, we're ashamed, but we can go to our God, and based on the work of Christ, we can confess our sins. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just, right, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the grace of God. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to buy it. It's the opposite of what Abimelech was trying to do. He had to buy people to work for him, to be loyal to him. And God says, no, you know what, my, my grace is free. You just, you just come to me, all ye who are weary. Repent of your sins, you turn to Christ, and Christ will forgive. Well, just like Israel, the trees in this parable are looking for a king, but no one wants the job. No one wants the job. None of the trees want the job. The olive, the fig, the vine, they all decline for the, decline for the same basic reason. They're not going to tear themselves up from the soil in which they've been planted in order to bear fruit to sway over trees. Uh, the, the verb there literally means to float about or soar above. <clears throat> and so if you think the, the oil, the figs, the wine, these are very valuable commodities in Israel. Why would they give up their, 
the soil to go, go do this. So they're not willing to do that just to be exalted as a king. Um, the concept behind it really makes its own comment on the value or otherwise of the kingly office. Um, it's, if God can be your king, that's something. But a human king, really? You'd rather have a human king than God be your king? And so all the trees now are involved, verse 14. It seems that no other candidate is forthcoming. And now all of a sudden it brings up this, this bramble bush who's too pleased to accept um, because a bramble bush has really no useful task at all. There's no <clears throat> task that it performs. Um, it, it, it offers nothing but thorns to people. That's all this bush does. The shelter of its shade is even, they say, insufficient to protect from the burning sun. It can't even do that right. So it's a throwaway bush. <clears throat> and it says, hi, you want to make me king? Sure. It has nothing positive to give. And the trees will soon discover in the parable all that this bramble bush can do to them is hurt and wound them. And it's an illustration of he wants these people to see, look, Abimelech's not in this for you. He doesn't want to become king to help you, to protect you. He's in it for himself. And eventually he will hurt you. So we see that, that announcement there, that parable. And then in verse uh, 16, we see the, the rebuke, really. We see the ridicule, then the rebuke. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserve. For my father fought for you, he's speaking of Gideon, and risked his life to deliver you from the hand of Midian. How quickly you forget. Remember when we were under threat and they would come and they would pillage and they would take all of our stuff and my dad stood up to him, he, he defeated him, God gave him victory over that. Verse 18, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons? Have you lost your mind? Seventy men on one stone and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant. See that? He was an illegitimate son. King over the leaders of Shechem. Why did you do this? The end of verse 18. Because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. <laughs> in other words, if that's your choice, have fun with it. Verse 20, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let the fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother or half-brother. So in verse 16, the prophet who ridicules what's going on, he really rebukes them. He turns into a preacher and he begins to tell the people of Israel what's really going on here. 
They asked Gideon to be their king, but he had declined. How much he'd done for them was a matter that was indisputed in history. He didn't even have to bring it up, but he had to because it seems like they had forgotten. But now they sided with the murderer of his dynasty, who is to Gideon as this bramble bush is to an olive tree or a fig tree. And they're soon going to find out that they will be set on fire and consumed by their king in the foolishness of their own actions. And that's sometimes how sin is. Sin looks real good, right? When you're about to participate or you're participating in something that's sinful. It feeds the flesh. You don't see the long-term consequences. Um, That's why our enemy is, is called an angel of light. He's not a little red individual with a pitchfork and a forked tail and horns running around. He's an angel of light. He makes things look good. He makes things look shiny. He makes things appealable to us. But when you peel off the skin, look out. And so the principle here of retribution is really part of this prophetic curse uh, with which he ends his proclamation. As the men of Shechem have not acted in truth, in sincerity, with his dad, uh, they have nothing to look forward to. Uh, but reaping a reward for their actions. And so, you know, um, I think a friendship based on ambition, a friendship based on ingratitude or disloyalty and bloodshed could only have disastrous consequences for both sides. It's not going to go well. Uh, And so Jotham, he just heads out of there. He takes off. He says, I'm going to go watch this from a, a distance. <laughs> I don't want to be part of this, this parade. This is not going to be fun. And so we see his destruction, his denouncements, and then we see the difficulties that seem to rise up here in verse 22. And you notice they're caused by God. This is just rampant evil that begins to take place here. It's a rebellion against Abimelech. It's a picture of a divided uh, kingdom. And it says in verse 22, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. That's all he had, three years. And God sent an evil spirit. God will use whatever means necessary to carry out his purpose and his plan. So he made sure that there was something going on between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Remember, these are the guys that made him king. (laughs) That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerebbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. See, there's something here to be said about associating with someone, right? There's something here to be said. Be careful who you hang with. Be careful who your company is. And these people in Shechem, these leaders, understood that. They were the ones that made this happen by their own stupidity. They thought, well, yeah, we'll listen to this guy. and uh, We don't want these 70 other people who aren't even our relatives ruling over us. I'm sure he'll watch out for us. Well, they learned real quick. He had 
no desire to do that. He was just in it for himself. And so when they began to realize, wait, if he goes and he kills them and we, we gave him the resources to do this, I think there's a God in heaven that's going to hold us accountable for this. Right? You hear about it all the time. Someone's in a car. They go out and they commit a crime. Well, what are you? You're an accessory to what? To whatever the crime is. doesn't matter if you did anything. You're, you're, you're part of that group that went out and stole that car or murdered that person or whatever. It doesn't matter. Verse 25, And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. So basically, these guys turned on Abimelech and they started just pillaging <laughs> and uh, causing major problems. But it really started with verse 23, and it says, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. So he said, this isn't going to be a happy time with your newfound king. I'm going to make sure of that. And you're going to regret the moment that you allowed this to happen. And it's also caused by Gael down there in verse 26. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. So he comes in. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. So he's a new guy on the block. Hey, let, maybe this guy, we can join forces with him. Verse 27, And they went out into the field and they gathered grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. Let's have a big party. We'll join forces and have a, a, a big Big party. And they went into the house of their god, notice a pagan god, and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebeb, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Isn't it funny how sometimes the things you want the most, as soon as you get them, you realize, why did I ever do this? You know, it's like going out and, and looking for a car and you go to the new car lot and the guy talks you into some car you can't even afford, but it's so nice, you know. And you sign the beat and you get home and you go, why did I do this? And you're trying to take it back, you know. That's, that's not a good move. Well, that's kind of what happened here. They had buyer's remorse with Abimelech and they thought, hey, let's get this new god, new guy, Gael. We'll join forces with him. We'll have a big party. And they got a little carried away. Now, remember, he's still king. Abimelech is king. And uh, they thought, you know what? Who is Abimelech? We are of Shechem. Who are we that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Gideon? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamar, Hamar and the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Verse 29. Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zerbol, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebeb, his anger was kindled. Verse 31, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebeb, <coughs> and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with, with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. 
And when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set in ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. Verse 36, And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming out of the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadow of mountains for men. And Gael spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land. And one company is coming from the direction of the uh, diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Uramah. And Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell in Shechem. So you see here that Abimelech begins to have a little bit of difficulty, first by God, then by this character called Gael. But then here you see his depravity. (laughs) Uh, He just loses it. And you see the destruction of Shechem. And it's really a, a picture of evil vengeance. It's somebody who, who is just out to, on, just for revenge. And it says here in verse 42, On the following day the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. And he took his people, and he divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked, and he saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. <laughs> Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city, he killed the people who were in it, and he <clears throat> razed the city, destroyed the city, and he, he sowed it with salt. It just kind of destroyed everything. You couldn't plant anything or anything. It was kind of like a... Um, just something that would, would kill everything. Verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Verse 48. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood. And he took it up and he laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. And they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Just an evil act. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very chilling chilling tale story here account in scripture but his reign king abimelech's reign was um despotic but it was it was limited Um, he would have no doubt 
have referred to himself as reigning over Israel, and yet he was really just this local warlord over a uh, certain portion of it. Um, commentators say that probably it didn't extend any further than the tribe of, of Ephraim and half the tribe of Manasseh. But what's, what's important to note here is, I mean, theologically, is the divine initiative that we see there in verse 23, that God did this. God caused this to happen. It's for his purpose. Um, I mean, there were discernible political reasons for their actions, but the Bible shows the real cause was this spirit that God sent. And what's interesting is no longer is the covenant name Yahweh used here for God, but just the more general term for God. And that's because the people concerned had fallen so far short of their relationship with him. So he, he, he almost treats them like the pagan tribes whose gods they have adopted to worship. And it seems like all the devil's power behind all this adulterous worship, God just unleashes and says, here, you wanted this, you can have it. See how this works for you. And it's, it's the outworking of his justice. Um, and that's what we need to be reminded of, is that God doesn't allow things like this to go unanswered. Um, so Abimelech, verse, 20, or verse 41 there, tells us he's already living with his officer, Zebul, um, uh, or he's living in, in Arumah, and he left his officer, Zebul, in Shechem to control it. And so he, he's, he's losing power is what's happening. He's becoming subject to all these ambushes by this rogue group of people who are against him, and it's a strategy of destabilization. I mean, the government of Abimelech wasn't even able to provide safe travel for the people under his, under his rule. He wasn't able. He wasn't competent. So what kind of king was he? Uh, he just ruled by power and, and might and really putting people in despair. And that's, that's what power does. You know, there, I have no doubt in my mind... <laughs> when this pandemic started, that people in our government looked at this situation and said, here's our opportunity. We can take advantage of this. We can control people with this. That's exactly what they did. They're still doing it to this day. It's not that the virus isn't real, it is real. I mean, I don't want the virus any more than anybody else wants the virus. But I mean, when you're really fed a pack of lies that are meant to scare and to fear and threaten you, and all of a sudden, I, I really believe people in the government realized right away, wow, they're actually listening to us. So back to our story, into this situation where Abimelech's government wasn't even able to uh, guarantee safe travel in the immediate area of its control, we ask, what kind of king was he? 
And into this situation, Gael, the son of Ebed, comes in verse 26. And some people believe that he was some kind of a Robin Hood figure traveling the country and righting the wrongs. And he and his uh, group, kind of like an original Israeli A-team, you might say, um, is injected into the story. And they're opportunists. And the Shechemites welcome him as an ally in their cause. And soon, in the context of this drunken pagan temple party that they throw in celebration of their joint effort to overthrow Abimelech, his words, Gael's words, are flowing. And as a result of the wine, probably, that he's imbibed in, uh, he despises Abimelech the king, not because of his character or because of his record, but because he is the son of the man who destroyed the altar of Baal. He's the son, even illegitimately, of Gideon. And he makes the case that the Shechemites should be true to their ancestry, and their ancestry is one of the pagan prince Hamar, the Hevite, who actually founded the city. And so why tolerate anymore the descendant of a man who had attempted to destroy their culture and their <coughs> ethnic religious origins in favor of a foreign god, in favor of Yahweh. And it's in this context that Gael is making his bid for power. Well, Zabul, Abimelech's agent, however, is incensed and he masterminds the counterattacks, informing his master of the danger and uh, suggesting a, a surprise early in the morning, a preemptive ambush to overwhelm Gael and his, the opposing forces. And the strategy is devastatingly successful. Uh, Gael is surprised by the four companies coming at him from different directions and routed with ease in verse 40 <clears throat> and returning into the city for protection he is eventually expelled by uh, Zabul in verse 41 <clears throat> and everything seems to have returned to normal but fire is to come forth from the bramble the bramble king Abimelech and the next day, the Shechemites are working in the fields outside the fortified city. And what happens? They, too, are ambushed and massacred by Abimelech. And so this king turns his attention to the city which he takes, and he destroys, along with all the inhabitants. And see, the mark of Abimelech's total victory is that he sprinkled the ruined city with salt, it tells us in verse 45. And that basically made it an uninhabited area forever, a barren desert. And even those who had escaped to the tower, the stronghold, uh, cannot avoid his wrath, the wrath of Abimelech. And at the place where they had crowned him king, this bramble king, the fire literally shoots out from him and consumes them all. That's what it tells us in verse 49. 
And it's a fulfillment of the prophecy from Jotham. And it's, it's a bloodbath of senseless revenge and wanton destruction. And Jotham's curse is fulfilled as a tidal wave of unstoppable evil. Terrifying in its power, its magnitude. It engulfs it. It destroys Shechem. And you have to draw some application here. And the lesson we want to learn is the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. Once that tide of evil begins, nothing can contain it in the end. The world saw this as they learned the lesson in the 1930s as the evil Nazi power base in Germany grew stronger and stronger and was virtually unchallenged until the whole world was caught up in the outcome. And the translation is, is we think that we can contain sin. We think that sin can be contained. Well, it cannot. Even in our Christian lives, we, we talk of little sins or white lies. And we try to persuade ourselves that we can stop whenever we wish. And it's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And we should not make light of these things. I'm reminded of an illustration of Dr. Paul White. He was a famous jungle doctor. And he tells the story of an African family who took pity on an orphaned leopard as a little cub. And they took this leopard into their home and they nurtured it and they cared for it. And they treated it as their pet. And frequently they were warned by the doctor to return it to the wild before it became too powerful for them to handle but the warnings were dismissed. They were disregarded. They said, well, we know this animal too well. It's our pet. It's one of our family. It eats with us. It sleeps with us. It's not going to do us any harm. And just as the doctor predicted one day, that day came when this leopard cub that was no longer a cub showed its true nature. And the, quote, domesticated beast of prey became a killer. And the doctor's message was clear from the beginning. It was plain. His message was this. Little leopards become big leopards. And guess what? Big leopards kill. It's ingrained in them. That's what they do. And that's really the characteristic nature of sin. Little sins become big sins. And death is the result, always, not sometimes, always, spiritual death. The characteristic nature of sin is contempt for anything of value. It's really the opposite of what Paul tells us in Philippians 4.8, where he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the opposite of the message that sin sends. Sin sends us in the opposite direction. John 10.10 10 tells us the thief does not come except to what? Steal, to kill, and destroy. Speaking of the enemy. 
That's why in 1 John 2, 15 to 16, we understand that sin is no friend of the shepherd or the sheep. In 1 John, it tells us, 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, in a culture like ours, where the very concept of sin is an endangered species, sin is no longer sin, the world in which we live. It's really under the threat of extinction. And we need to hear this lesson over and over and over again to remind us that there is such a thing as sin. It is common to view the individual sins as nothing more than just a little nu- nuisance or irritation. Like a minor traffic offense. They will only cause us difficulties if we are foolish or unfortunate enough to accumulate too many. That's what we tell ourselves. No big deal. And what the message of this chapter is, it's a powerful corrective to that sort of self-indulgent weakness which infects our thinking, even as Christians. I mean, you see it throughout our society. Um, If we flaunt God's rules, we must be prepared to face the consequences. We would accept in the physical realm, but we imagine we can avoid it in the spiritual realm. You know, if you choose to smoke cigarettes, you're going to have health issues. One day you'll have health issues. That's the basic truth. If you're a compulsive liar, you're going to end up isolated and friendless because you forfeited everyone's trust. I mean, no one in their right mind is going to organize a party to defy the law of gravity by jumping off the the tallest building. That's a party no one's going to attend. We all know that the law defied in that way would exact its own price. Your death. You'd be splattered on the sidewalk below. God has made it very clear that our fragile lives are not free to play fast and loose with the structures of reality. So why should we expect any difference when it comes to the spiritual realm? God has determined how his creatures should live. He's God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. For he knows how he has made us to function at our best. His laws are, are designed not to enslave us, but to what? To liberate us. Much like the rules of the road do. When you see a stop sign, you stop. Why? Because if you don't stop, you could potentially harm yourself or someone else. When you watch a, a sporting event, there's rules. It's not just a free-for-all. And those rules help us, what? Enjoy the game. See, true freedom is living in conformity with the will of God. That's what true freedom is. And every act of sin is an attack on that very principle. Well, let's move on here as we close.
tonight, we see Abimelech's death. We see Abimelech's death. The death of Abimelech came as a just judgment of God. In Judges chapter 9, verses 50 to 57, it says, Then Abimelech went to Thebaz and encamped against Thebaz and captured it. So another city, he figured, hey, we're going to take these people down too. That's what happens with power. That's what happens with authority when it's abused. There's no end. Verse 51, but there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and the women and all the leaders of the city fled into it and shut themselves in it. We've seen this before. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. This is exactly the same game plan he used before. This speaks of the repetitive nature of the strategy of sin in our lives. It's, uh, sin doesn't have to invent new ways to come at us. It uses the same, same thing, the flesh, the devil, the world. It's the same template. And we're just too gullible and we fall for it over and over again. Well, here Abimelech is thinking, hey, I'm just going to play the same game again. All right, they locked themselves in the tower. We're going to burn them, burn them down, burn it up. Well, verse 53 says there was one problem. A certain woman <laughs> threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. So out of the blue, when he least expected it, someone who he least expected would take him out, took him out, a woman. In verse 54, you see the egotistical nature of this individual, Abimelech. Rather than deal with his crushed skull, verse 54, he's more concerned with how this looked. Then he called quickly to a young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say, A woman killed me. God forbid. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. Thinking about himself. Thinking about his legacy. Focused. Not on God, not on God's people, but on himself. Verse 55, and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. See, what you sow is what you're going to reap, one way or another. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Zerubbabel. See, crazed by his obliteration of Shechem, Abimelech decides to add another city, Thebaz. The town was situated a few miles north of Shechem, and we're given no reason why he decided to set siege to it. Most probably, the revolt that had been simmering in Shechem had its supporters in Thebaz too, so he thought, you know what, we got to go after all these guys. And Abimelech seemed to have seized the city without too much difficulty. And again, its citizens took its refuge in the tower. And once again, Abimelech demonstrates his own total contempt for human life and seeks to burn these people alive in the tower. But this time it's thwarted by a woman. 
and she drops what is called as an upper millstone. And these millstones were two circular stones, one uh, between one and two feet in diameter, and maybe two to four inches thick. So this was no little pebble that she dropped. This was a heavy millstone. They were heavy. They were hard. And being dropped from such a height would definitely crush your skull. And as Abimelech's armor bearer killed him, so the fire created by this bramble king was abruptly extinguished. And the final verses of the chapter offer the ingredient of divine retribution to which our attention has already been drawn. God caused the wickedness to return. One commentated this. It not only means that God punished them, but also draws in the interconnection between the crime and the punishment and shows that the partnership in evil was disastrous for both sides. The Shechemites' disloyalty to Gideon's family reduced them to servitude under Abimelech's tyranny, and the cruel king met his own cruel death in his subjects' revolt. See, God is not mocked. When you sow something, you will reap something in return. Well, what can we draw from all this? Perhaps the one thing I see in this whole story is the controlling hand of God, God's sovereignty. Yes, he does permit evil to thrive and develop at times with, it may be, disastrous consequences. But he also limits its extent. He cuts Abimelech short in the midst of, of his career. He extinguishes the flames when they seem to spread and overwhelm the whole land. So we're not looking at a forest fire that's out of God's control because nothing ever is out of God's control in this world or the next. Our God reigns and he uses adverse circumstances at times in life to teach his people that fundamental truth over and over and over again. The whole perspective has changed when we begin to understand this sad chapter as a record of covenant discipline, expressing the loving faithfulness of God. He cares what his people do, how they live, and who they worship. And he will stop at nothing to win them back to that personal relationship of trust and love for which he redeemed them, no matter how far they run, no matter how far they go. As a believer in God, as a one who trusts Christ, you're only one step away from repenting, from turning back to Him, to restoring that relationship if we've gone down the wrong path. Part of His devotion to His children is His commitment to discipline them for doing or for their own personal good. Even when his rod brings tears to their eyes, the proof of that conviction is quite simply the cross and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. At Calvary is a place where the covenant God exacts the full penalty and punishment that our sins deserve. Not on us, but on Christ, on his own son. That is where we see God's retributive justice in all its 
intensity of wrath launched against human sin. Because he literally took our sin and he placed it on his son who was perfect, who never committed one sin. God was in Christ carrying the full effect of our sin. And in conquering that death, he overcame all the hostile forces that were raged against us. If God is willing to and prepared to do that, then he will be committed to right every wrong and to bring in his everlasting kingdom everything of justice and peace. That is the covenant faithfulness of God. And God will stop at nothing to see that it is fulfilled. I'm reminded of the words of John Newton, a converted slave trader in the 1700s, and he wrote this, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts as we depart Bless us in our journey. Pray you give us safe passage home. Pray you bless our fellowship here. Help us to learn from the life of Abimelech. Help us to learn that it matters who we associate with. Help us to learn that we need to be the salt and the light each and every day in this lost and dying world. We ask and we pray all these things for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.